We're starting things off with a word from our sponsor. Since 1998, DVD Netflix has delivered more than 5 billion DVD and Blu-ray rentals to movie lovers in every American zip code and to military bases around the world in their famous, iconic red envelopes. With an extensive library of titles from the early 1900s to today and shows from such premium networks as HBO and Showtime, DVD Netflix is a must for physical media lovers. Featuring a variety of different plans starting at as little as $8.99 per month, it's a great way to experience DVDs and Blu-rays with special features and commentary tracks you won't find anywhere else. A member for over 20 years, so well before I ever began working with the service as an official blogger on acting or as a DVD, Netflix, Twitter film discussion host, I think it's a terrific way to keep our vintage video store memories alive and support the physical media that we love so much. So be sure to check out DVD Netflix for yourself at dvd.com. Now on with the show. Hey, this is Jen Johans at filmintuition.com and filmintuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen. All right, ladies and gentlemen, today, Burnsy from Boston is back. It's my good friend, Sean Burns, a film critic for WBUR's Arts and Culture and a contributing writer at North Shore Movies and Crooked Marquee. He was Philadelphia Weekly's lead film critic from 1999 to 2013 and worked as a contributing editor at the Improper Bostonian from 2006 to 2014. His reviews, interviews, and essays have also appeared in Metro, The Village Voice, Rolling Stone, The Boston Herald, Nashville Scene, Time Out New York, Philadelphia City Paper, and RogerEbert.com. A graduate of New York University's Tisch School of the Arts, Burns was a recurring guest on the late David Brudnoy's WBZ 1030 AM radio show, and in 2002 received an award for excellence in criticism from the Greater Philadelphia Society of Professional Journalists. His writing has been called jocular but serious, more like a 1940s daily reporter pounding out columns on a manual typewriter than a typical 21st century navel-gazing film critic. Meanwhile, his sisters still tell him that he swears too much and drives like an old lady. Sean, thank you so much for being here once again. I had a ball talking Michael Douglas with you last year. How are you doing and how's the summer treated you so far? That's good. It's, I can't believe it's wrapping up. You know, it's still 86 yes. degrees outside. So it is flying right by. And off air, I was talking to Sean. He went to Fenway Park last night. So did the Red Sox win? No. No, you like things <laughs> you're asking, do. Jen. Yeah, <laughs> it's a horrible anecdote. No, <laughs> uh, no, they, they don't win often. At the restaurant where I work, they have uh, kids eat free when the Red Sox win, and it has not impacted our budget much this summer. Okay, gotcha. Well, what have you been working on lately? I always get excited. You had recently a series of neo noirs that you programmed and uh, wrote 
really beautifully about recently. Is there anything else you've been working oh, thanks. on? Thanks, that was fun. I'm working yes. on a piece now, actually. Uh, a friend's theater is doing Midnight Movies 101. How cool. showing all of, like, um, you know, El Topo and Eraserhead and Pink Flamingos, all the essentials. Yes. So I'm, I'm, I'm writing a syllabus. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> I like that. That's sort of a parody syllabus, you know, with related yeah. reading and course prerequisites and things. <laughs> oh, that's really creative. Well, you know what's funny, Burns, is last year I basically told you that we were doing an episode on Michael Douglas because weirdly we were two of the only people from our generation, it seemed, that had never seen Disclosure before. <laughs> and then after that episode, I think I promised you that next time you would totally get to choose the topic cut to one year later. And as my pandemic obsession with Jack Nicholson in the seventies has continued to grow, I think I just assigned this topic to you once again, last spring. And I really got to stop doing that because I keep just going, Burns, we're talking about this. So I appreciate it. Good. Yeah. You're too kind. You're like, whatever. We'll talk. Yes. <laughs> Me talk about Jack Nicholson. I do that anyways, every day. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody does. Yes. Or they should. Definitely. So thanks for being so flexible. But I do know, fortunately, too, that you are a big fan. Your writing on his work is routinely stellar. I'm going to be linking to some of your articles in the post for when this Thank drops. You. And I feel like we both have an affinity for not only character actors, but also these larger than life figures who are so much more worthwhile to explore than perhaps their popular reputation or their infamy or their gimmicky late career parody style turns might lead you to believe. And Jack is one of those guys. Obviously, longtime listeners know that many of Nicholson's movies have been explored in this podcast in the past. Reds, The Last Detail, Chinatown, and The Departed, etc. And while I'm sure we'll reference some of these movies and more, we were still able to choose five very diverse turns that we wanted to discuss in the movies Easy Rider, which launched him into the stratosphere of movie star and Oscar nominee, Five Easy Pieces, which is a personal obsession, The Shining, which we knew would be a listener favorite, Terms of Endearment, which sees him playing with his persona, and a return to his character actor beginnings in the post-Joker and Batman world, or the Jack era, as I like to call it, and Sean Penn's The Crossing Guard. We'll go deeper into the movies one by one in just a moment. And yes, there will be spoilers ahead, people. But before we do that, I'd love to hear your thoughts on Jack. Everything from if you remember where you first saw him or your evolving relationship with his work, his legacy. Why do you think he's so compelling? My favorite Nicholson story I have to start out with. Um, right on. When they're shooting as good as it gets. I think I probably told you this before, but a friend of mine was working at a restaurant and Jack came in by himself and he got a steak. And he ate about half of it and he calls the guy over and he's like, oh, my eyes are bigger than my stomach. But my driver might like a, a nice steak sandwich if you could cut this up into a steak sandwich. And Jack paid and gratuitously over tipped and, and then said, I'll go check with him and let you know. 90 <laughs> minutes go by. Oh, my God. <laughs> All of a sudden, the restaurant door is thrown open and Nicholson yells, no sandwich necessary. <laughs> and disappears into the night. <laughs> 
That's amazing. I'm just imagining all the people because you know, obviously, all the tables Who had no idea over. what that was about. <laughs> you know, I mean, the the diners early were sort of, oh, Jack Nicholson's eating over there, but you know, it gets to yeah, be yeah. You know, an hour and a half later. <laughs> no, you know, if you were there and you just walked in, you might have thought twice about ordering a sandwich, right? <laughs> oh my God, that's good. I'm it's not really, even going to ask what he was doing in the car. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. What was going on for 90 minutes? Was he was he arguing with the driver? Were they talking about their favorite sandwiches? We don't know. It's part of the mythos that is Jack. Do you remember the first movie you might have seen him in? I want to say it was got to be either The Shining or Cuckoo's Nest, right? Because those okay. were on TV all the time when we were kids. Yeah. And that was sort of, you know, because I, I know as a kid, I wanted a carnival, a, a Here's Johnny t-shirt. That had his Ooh. face, you know, in the doorway, yeah. and it said, "Here's Johnny." And yeah, it was one of those shirts my mother used to hide when she did the laundry because she hated me wearing it. It was <laughs> like your blue velvet shirt. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I had a lot of t-shirts that she used to hide on me. She would never throw yeah. them out because they were mine. But Ooh, that's a good mom, though. Yeah, she was, you know, being a little cautious, but she wasn't throwing them in the trash. That's important. I think my first Nicholson was Batman '89. I remember seeing that in the theater. And so I kind of grew up in that whole, it went from then to, you know, a few good men and his sort of bigger persona. And so when I finally started to see the more um, internalized, softer portrayals, it was kind of like seeing Pacino in that era, too. you know, because you watch Heat and you're like, what the hell is happening? Or Son of a Woman, he's screaming all the time. Uh, So, you know, when we came of age in this era, it it took a while to realize what they could do. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I just remember the Witches of Eastwick made a huge impression long before I saw it, just the the trailers with him saying he's a horny little devil. And, you know, (laughs) and of course, watching the Oscars every year, he was always the best part. Yes. Yeah, Jack with the sunglasses, which he finally years later admitted were prescription and he needed them. But he had this really (laughs) great uh, line about it. He said, you know, without the sunglasses, I'm fat and old. But with them, I'm Jack Nicholson. Perfect. (laughs) I mean, he was very clever like that, too, because that was the only time you got to see him not at the movies. You know, he was smart about that. I feel like DiCaprio has taken that page from him where, you know, if you... If you want to see him, you have to pay. He's not going to be on TV shows or. No, no. Yeah. He doesn't do a lot of that. Yes, exactly. Why do you think he's such a compelling figure overall on screen? I mean, well, I mean, there's so much going on with him. Yeah. Internally, like you can't, and you can't take your eyes off it, off of him. But um, it's also, there's since nobody's having more fun than him. No, <laughs> he's kind of like he gets compared to Cagney all the time, and he really is. He's like having a ball out there. Yes. But yeah, I mean, just the and the way he responds to the camera. Like I, I read a funny story about him. His advice for a young actor is: uh, you have to figure out what all the muscles in your face do. Ooh, that's good. Yes. And they were saying, like, to, to prepare for a part, I think it was, he would just read the whole script in the mirror. And they were like, this egomaniac wow. staring at himself in the mirror all day. And it's like, no, he's, you know, he's figuring, figuring out. out. Yeah. And that's, I think, how he gets so much power and, like, you know, one eyebrow going up or. 
That is really incredible. I had heard that about Lucille Ball too. She would painstakingly work things out in the mirror to see what was funnier or how her reaction should be. And people were like, what is she doing? Because she could make it look so effortless, which is kind of what Nicholson does. But yeah, when you see those eyebrows doing things, uh, you know, like you brought up as good as it gets. He has a line about boyfriend, you know, and his, his eyebrows go up when Helen Hunt had called him a boyfriend, or of course the most famous, or one of my favorite scenes besides here's Johnny in the shining is when he, you know, slow night tonight and some of the crazy stuff he does in the shining. So yeah, he was figuring it out. Definitely. Well, we should probably dive into these movies because there is a lot to discuss here. So chronologically, first up, we have the film that catapulted the actor, then age 32, a veteran of 18, Roger Corman, Monty Hellman, B-movies, who had taken to writing recently because he was getting dismayed with his future in front of the camera. We're talking about 1969's Easy Rider, directed by Dennis Hopper and written by, if you can call it that, it was largely improvised, Hopper, Peter Fonda, and Terry Southern. In the movie, Jack Nicholson, who cut his hair, shaved his beard, and chose his own wardrobe and glasses for the role, stars as George Hansen, a good-natured drunk and lawyer for the ACLU, loosely modeled on a recurring progressive lawyer character named Gavin Stevens in the work of author William Faulkner. In a scene-stealing performance that not only caused Peter's sister Jane Fonda to say Nicholson walked off with her brother's movie, but also garnered him an Academy Award nomination, Nicholson manages to both steal viewer hearts and also deliver the most important monologue in the film in just 25 minutes of screen time. It's a hell of a breakout turn. So what are your thoughts on Easy Rider? Yeah, I'm not the biggest fan of the film except for the Jack Nicholson scenes, which make the whole movie for me. I agree with you. I think the movie is kind of, it's, it's long. It's very unwieldy. There's things I love about it. I don't know that I can sit down and watch it all the time, but I love his scenes when he leaves the film, it kind of never really recovers, which is something, yeah, something contemporaneous uh, critics did right. Like, you know, there was an article in the New York times that basically said, the headline was like the man who walked off with easy rider. And it was about Jack. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's just, what a shot in the arm. Cause the movie is really kind of morose and yeah. <laughs> you know, so like we're sitting there on the commune or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, okay, we're just on this drug fueled journey. You know, we look cool on our bikes. We have the great music playing. And then, yeah, once we're in jail and, uh, he wakes up and he's he's still hung over and he's sort of doing this like you promise these people and you promise these people, you know, this this thing that he does. It's just irresistible. I think you can see how he would charm everybody. Um, you know, he's charming the cops in the scene. He's charming Fonda and Hopper. Yeah. And again, you know, nobody's having more fun. Him with the motorcycle helmet on. You can't not laugh. <laughs> I know. Or, yeah, the football, the football helmet. helmet. Sorry, yeah. Yeah. Oh, no, you're fine. Or that crazy toast he gives for old D.H. Lawrence and the Nick Nick Indians. Like, where the hell did that come from? <laughs> the, the arm stuff. Yes. <laughs> The arm stuff for sure. Yeah. And I mean, you know, he had fun putting that whole thing together. Basically, his ensemble, his glasses were kind of modeled on his 
grandpa who he grew up thinking was his father. And then in the early seventies, he realized that his sister was actually his mother and she'd been 17, a showgirl unmarried. And the parents just kind of, you know, hid that fact and raised him. And so even though he didn't know his grandfather too much, he wanted to pay tribute to him. And I thought that was kind of nice. Yeah. And if Rip Torn had never punched Terry Southern, then none of this would have happened. <laughs> yeah, we have no idea. There's been so many stories about Rip Torn, like pissing off, you know, Hopper or Hopper said he pulled a knife on him and that kind of, you know, that was litigious. It wound up in court and Hopper kept like appealing and losing more money and more money because he made up the story allegedly and or it was kind of thrown out. So it must've been made up on uh, the tonight show, but yeah, rip torn could have been rip, but it was, it was Jack for sure. Imagine being in a room with Dennis Hopper and rip torn. Like, <laughs> Oh my God. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, I mean, he was kind of brought on to keep the production in line too. Jack, yeah. which is funny, like the idea of like, oh, we, we need someone calm to control this, get Jack Nicholson. <laughs> He's such a just stabilizing influence, right? Right. Yes. That's one of the things I love about him, though, is he has this sort of wild persona that he does. But the more you read about him, the more you get to know who he was, you realize like, you know, there's some real intelligence there and there's, um, he puts so much thought into everything, but he has sort of this anti-establishment thing about him. Like he tells stories about being in high school and one year he had detention every day for the year, but it was more just, he liked goofing off and he didn't like authority figures. So it was just kind of a recurring, doesn't want to listen to people thing, but yeah, he was sort of uh, the mature one on Easy Rider, which is crazy to think because they were all high as a kite. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it is funny. I mean, that because I just sort of grew up with that idea of him as the anti-authority. I think probably from seeing Cuckoo's Nest and yes. reading it when I was a kid. I guess kids don't read that book anymore. It's problematic or something, which is too bad. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't read it since high school, but they probably don't read that one in high school anymore. Yeah, my 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 dad's girlfriend is a college professor, and she mentioned uh, she teaches she was teaching nursing, and she mentioned Nurse Ratchet, and just got like blank faces from all. Oh the my god! <laughs> you know what's bad is now everyone is going to think of Nurse Ratchet and like Sarah Paulson in that TV show. <laughs> oh, I hope not. That didn't really happen, did it? <laughs> you hope not. Yes, I know it's crazy. It is then, scary. Like when yeah. I was in. Well, I was helping. I sat in on my friend's film class. He teaches high school film at a vocational school. Oh, cool! We showed The Departed, and uh, afterwards, one of the kids was like, "Yeah, now the the old guy. Who's that actor who plays Costello?" And we're like, "Oh my god, <laughs> the most Oscar-nominated male <laughs> actor of all time." Yes. I mean, I guess he, you know, retired when there were infants. So. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Yeah, he came out of, he said he wasn't like fully retired. He just wasn't going after things. But yeah, he was basically like, I'm just going to go hang out at Laker games even more and just kind of take it easy because he'd been, you know, working really nonstop. Yeah, for sure. Yes, I think he has the most important monologue in Easy Rider, basically. It's sort of 
tells you everything. I like that the character who wears the glasses is the one who can see America the clearest, I think. Ah. Yeah. Yeah. I love his character. Yeah. And that but great. You really love him in five easy pieces. I because do. Because floral. Yeah. The floral, the toxic uh, nature, <laughs> the complexity, you know, what's going on. Yeah. I'm obsessed with five easy pieces. So we should probably move on then. Next, we do have the performance that I personally consider to be Nicholson's best as a short tempered, listless oil rig worker in Kern County, California. Nicholson's Bobby DePee spends his off hours drinking, skirt chasing, bowling, and killing time with his friend Elton. Much to the chagrin of his intensely devoted, extremely affectionate waitress slash aspiring country singer girlfriend Rayette, played by Karen Black. After she gets pregnant and Elton is arrested, Bobby quits his job impulsively and ventures up to his family's estate to see his ailing, estranged father and the rest of the family, all of whom, including classical pianist Bobby, are gifted musicians. Directed by Bob Rafelson and written by Carol Eastman as Adrian Joyce, the film garnered Nicholson an Oscar nod as Best Actor one year following his Supporting Actor nomination for Easy Rider, and it finally gave the emerging character actor a true showcase to display just what he was capable of. After years of toiling away in B-movies and behind the scenes doing writing, you know, making that movie Head with Bob Rafelson for The Monkees, this sudden shock of just how much talent was there and had been there all along is perhaps one reason why my favorite scene in Five Easy Pieces is when he gets out of the car in rush hour traffic after goofing off, barking like a dog, he climbs aboard the back of a truck that's moving a piano and starts to show us skills we did not realize he had. And I think that is Nicholson in a nutshell and why it feels so genuine and revelatory. But that's enough for me. You know, I'm obsessed. So let's get into it. Five easy pieces. Sean Burns, go. Oh, I mean, toxic, I guess. But again, you can't take your eyes off him. I mean, no. this character, there's yeah. so much roiling inside him and it's... Yes. <laughs> you know, it's just watching it again. I mean, it flies by. It's... It really does. There's so much, uh, so much going on, so many contradictions. Like, uh, you know, he's kind of quiet. He's not going to do something in one scene. And then the next he flips out on the waitress about, you know, hold it between your knees. And oh, my gosh. Yeah. So much. Happening. Most important part, too. He's like, I didn't get the toast, did I? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He's assessing how well that went. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> They're all saying, I feel like it was misinterpreted because everyone thought that scene was so cool. And it's like, no, he's right. He didn't need it. You know, he didn't get anything. <laughs> he didn't get what he wants. Yeah. <laughs> everyone just thought, yeah, tell the waitress what's up. And it's like, no, what did that actually do for him? Yes. Yeah. It was the least sympathetic moment in the movie. I don't like when people are rude to wait staff. But <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> it's not her fault. The manager has a shitty substitutions policy. I know that makes no sense. You can't even have toast essentially. Yeah. Do you remember? I mean, it's just, it's such a yeah. fascinating character study. And now, I mean, God, I hate to see what would happen if it came out today. It would be problematic. And you know, yeah, there'd him... be so many think pieces about <laughs> yeah. Why this, this wasn't a thing. And yeah. Why we shouldn't be watching five easy pieces. I do find it really interesting that it was written by a woman. There are scenes, of course, like the diner scene that are, I guess, a 
pretty improvised. According to Karen Black, that diner moment was more Jack. She actually thought it was maybe out of character for Bobby a little bit. Um, so that kind of goes to your, it's, you know, the, the least sympathetic or you can understand. But I also think that the movie works so well because of his good friendship with Rafelson and him knowing what he could do and what buttons to push. Like that scene where he's going to go visit his family and he's, you know, packed his bag and he's told Rayad, you know, I never promised you it would work out. And then he gets in the car and he flips out, has this like meltdown, which, you know, I think we've all seen uh, boyfriends, fathers, brother, like people just freak out in the car. And I guess that was a one take thing. It was like, nope, he nailed it. Yeah. He knew he could do it. Yes. Yeah. I mean, the relationship with Ray is fascinating because it's like half the time he can't stand her, but she's so devoted to him that yeah. it's like it's out of guilt. And, yeah, and he's constantly running her down. But the minute someone in his family does, he's got her back. <laughs> I know. Yes, it's, it's very funny. It's kind of like that old adage, you know, where in your family, you're like, yeah, this is my cousin. He's an asshole, but he's my asshole. You can't. Right. Call him that. Yes. <laughs> It's kind of this weird, sick, codependent thing he has going on with her. She is kind of the embodiment of a country song, too. I always forget that, you know, it's Stand By Your Man opens this film, which is insane. <laughs> yes. Sometimes it's hard to be a woman. <laughs> yeah. Over the shot of oil rigs and, you know, men working in the field. Yes. Uh, and it's true. I was I was thinking of uh, when I was watching it again the other night. There's a Chris Christopherson quote like the only thing worse than when she doesn't love you back is when it's the other way around. Oh, yeah, it's so hard. Yes, I know. Yeah, yeah, it is just a fascinating relationship throughout. And I guess it was kind of maybe a little bit representational of what was going on with Karen Black because she's kind of admitted years later they only dated briefly but she was deeply in love with him and she said she had a crush on him right away because she said jack could like look directly at you with like this laser focus and you know how attractive that that is it's a little overwhelming and uh she had this like interview where she said she ran into him for around easy rider at con and she hadn't seen him in a while and she burst into tears and he had no idea why and she said that she hadn't seen him in a while and she realized seeing him how in love with him she was and i think it was past the point of you know them getting together i think she was with somebody else and bad timing so watching this and then knowing that it's like whoa yeah yeah and i like the movie doesn't try to explain him which is nice you know you're, it does you're he doesn't the... learn anything he doesn't know <laughs> yes yeah and i did notice this time um his brother is, you know, the object of ridicule with the neck brace and, you know, the goof yes. Carl. But Carl's like really good to Rayette. <laughs> he, really he really likes is. her. He's so sensitive and he listens to her. And uh, yeah, you kind of do. You you like his brother. And it's those contradictions again. I think one of the only female characters, well, he likes uh, his brother's girlfriend, but it's almost like you know, she's just there, she's attractive, and maybe to get one over on the brother, like, you mm -hmm. know, but the one female character that he really seems to have the most affection or care for is his sister, which mm -hmm. I thought was an interesting touch. Yeah, yeah. And that might have come from 
Jack being very close to his sister, not realizing it was um, his mother, because this was written by a really good friend of uh, Jack Nicholson's. So she would have known for years just about his background. And I don't think he, he didn't know about his sister slash mother Chinatown thing for a few years yet. But it wasn't until you know, after Chinatown, right? I think so. Yeah. Time magazine found out while they were doing research and they just approached him. They were like, very cool. We're not going to write about it, uh, but we just wanted you to know. Yeah. Crazy. Yes. Yeah. Do you have. Yeah, I think it, it really like 5Z pieces. It created this new kind of, you know, sort of the birth of the modern antihero there. It did. Because it's, it's this new kind of leading man where, you know, he doesn't have any answers and he's kind of a shit yeah he's existentially adrift basically (laughs) and he doesn't need to learn a lesson he doesn't need to figure out the answer to all of his problems like he even refuses a jacket at the end of the movie like he gets in the truck with this guy he's left his girlfriend who's pregnant and gets in the truck and the guy's like it's going to be cold where we're going we're thinking canada basically And, uh, (laughs) and he's like just Oh no, I'm fine. Uh, and, and that's kind of him in a nutshell. I don't think he knows what he wants. He wants something, he gets it. And then it's like, I don't want that. He's constantly right. darting in and out. Yeah. 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 Well, and you watch him bounce around with these, his different personas. I mean, when he's with his family, yeah. his whole affect changes, you know, he's like a good old boy for the first 35 minutes. And then, yeah, yeah. He's completely different for sure. And that could have come from Rafelson a little bit and his background. I guess the black sweater he wears was Rafelson's, so he might have been. He said he doesn't like to talk too much about where he's drawing on things. Uh, one of the funniest quotes I saw is, you know, everyone talks method acting and De Niro and Brando and stuff, and they never bring up Nicholson. And Nicholson uh, said in response once, still fooled him because he he considers himself a method actor and he was telling Sean Penn, like, I don't know what it is. They just always overlook me, but I think it's a good thing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, nobody knows what method acting means anymore. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. Anymore. Well, thank God we have a book now, which is really good. Have you read that one yet? No, I haven't read it yet. Oh so. my God. You're going to love it. Yeah. Isaac Butler's book is really good, but you know, it's. <laughs> no, know. no, I think everyone just thinks it's like Jared Leto being an asshole to his coworkers. I know, <laughs> or like eating <laughs> eating a rat, or you know, doing crazy shit like that. Yeah, <laughs> or that Jeremy Strong profile, or yeah, they they just assume it's one thing. Yes, yeah, definitely. This was you know the new Hollywood era, kind of the birth of it. Do you have this Criterion box set? I don't have the box set. I have the five easy pieces though. Cool. Yeah. For anyone listening who, you know, five easy pieces is available from Criterion, highly recommended, but there's also this um, BBS uh, box set that has uh, even his directorial debut drive. He said, which is not a good film, but they have that there's head there's King of Marvin gardens, which is phenomenal. This last picture show. There's some good stuff. Yeah. And the terrible Henry Jaglum film. <laughs> oh God, yes. Yes. What what movie what, I'm blanking on the name of it? But it's a, like a safe place, I think. A safe called. place, yes, I think yeah. so. Yeah. Yeah, I saw that a few years ago for the first time. I've never seen it. And the theater was 
doing a Jack, it was called Jack Attack. They did a Nicholson retrospective for the whole summer. Mm. And I was like, how have I never seen a movie with Jack and Orson Welles? Oh, that's why <laughs> I've never seen it. <laughs> yeah, there might have been a reason there. Yes. Yeah, definitely. Well, next up, we have Nicholson in one of his most iconic and perhaps notorious roles as school teacher, aspiring novelist, and recovering alcoholic Jack Torrance, who accepts the position working as off-season winter caretaker of the isolated yet majestically picturesque Overlook Hotel in the Colorado Rockies. Based on the smash Stephen King bestseller, The Shining, director Stanley Kubrick's loose altered adaptation plays more like a work of psychological horror, growing increasingly more frightening the longer Jack's wife, Wendy, Shelley Duvall, and son Danny, played by Danny Lloyd, stay at the Overlook and the film goes on. Though not remotely as well-received as the film is today as a seminal work of horror, The Shining once again found Nicholson working with a filmmaking master on par with some of his past and future collaborators with directors such as Antonioni, Polanski, Hal Ashby, Foreman, John Huston, Tim Burton, Scorsese, and more. So let's talk The Shining. Yeah, well, it got a bunch of Razzie nominations, right? It's crazy. Yes. And Stephen King hated it, which I mean, you can understand, you know, if you wrote the novel as one thing and then they change. Yeah. I mean, you can. Well, also, it's about his alcoholism. Mm -hmm. So I can see why he holds it very personally. And and I mean, it's it's such a radical reinterpretation. Yeah, His idea is like Jack was a good man and the and the ghost of the Overlook got him, whereas, you know, in the film, he's just a monster to begin with. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it doesn't take much to bring out the latent psychopath. I mean, he looks like he wants to kill his wife and kid when they're driving to the job interviews. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Yeah. And the moment he gets the job, we cut back to, you know, his home life. And that's when we start hearing like what is underneath his sort of nice demeanor. It's, it's a little too studied you know, they'll love it. Sure. If you're having coffee, this whole like thing at the beginning, it seems very artificial and you're not really sure. Like, he seems nice, but I also love watching it this time. I was, was noticing like his hair is crazy in that moment. Like he's sitting there, he's at his job interview and he's, he's acting one way, but also there's like some weird hair thing happening where it's sticking out in one place. And, you know, these are all choices. So you do see like, He's a little askew right away. He's reading a Playgirl magazine too. Like, I love that. that? He's sitting in the fucking lobby reading Playgirl. Yes. Oh my god. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's so many things in that movie. It's just like just designed to fuck with you. You know, <laughs> it really is. Yeah. You know, the famous thing you try to like chart the layout of that hotel, and it just makes no sense. Why there's a window in the middle of it? Yes. <laughs> Unless it's like my place here in Arizona, which has an atrium in the middle, but I don't think you would have an atrium in the middle of like winter in Colorado. That doesn't really make a lot of sense. No, I know. Yeah, I mean, this was a movie when I was a kid, it was on the UHF channel all the time. Was it? But we would always just, we were kids and we had no attention span. So we were all just, I I remember I taped it. We just always skipped to the last 40 minutes. Yeah. When he goes really psycho. (laughs) That you know, is, when you're 10 yeah. years old, you can only watch a kid ride a big wheel for so fucking long. 
I know it's such a labyrinth, this whole hotel and the way the shots just, we follow them in and around the kitchen. They're kind of establishing where everything is right away. And, you know, it's like a maze upon a maze. And people have said at the beginning of the movie, if you sync it up with the end and like put it on top of, I mean, there's all these theories. I'm sure you saw that documentary room 237, which is some of it makes yeah. sense. I will say like the one that opens it, I think about the native American uh, uh, somebody who worked on the movie said, yeah, Stanley Kubrick might be interested in that theory. So it might hold a little water, but then you have the mental ones like Stanley Kubrick faked the moon landing. And this that's movie, incredible. Yeah. This movie says why. Yeah. <laughs> it's his apology for faking. It's his apology. Yes. <laughs> oh my God. Uh, I thought it was yeah a wise choice in that movie, not to show the people who were espousing their theories because the tinfoil hats wouldn't look good (laughs) (laughs) you know like on the one level of academia and liking people to think deeply you're like you know go for it if that's your thought yay but at the same time you know not everything is a puzzle you have to put perfectly together sometimes it's the end of five easy pieces where just like this is what it is yeah yeah and i mean the shining is like kind of designed to defy analysis it really is like what is the bear doing (laughs) (laughs) there have been so many articles about what the bear having sex with the guy what does that represent and uh you know my gosh yes but yeah that um it was funny i remember just there's that story that steven spielberg thought nicholson went over the top in it Mm, i i haven't heard the whole story but oh yeah he um he talks about how uh, he was friends with Kubrick and the one Kubrick movie he didn't really like that much was the shining and he's still seen it 25 times. But that was so the one crazy. he was, but he, and Kubrick says, you thought Jack went over the top, didn't you? And, and then he asked Spielberg his favorite actors and he named like Gary Cooper and, you know, all this yeah, Spielberg yeah. And, and Kubrick said, you didn't say Jimmy Cagney. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, why I guess, you know, what's weird is when I was reading about this, so many critics were, were saying Cagney, which to me is like a perfect comparison. Mm. But then they were also saying like Spencer Tracy. And I'm like, I don't see Spencer Tracy with, with Jack, really. But Cagney, yeah, you have to yeah. like this kind of thing. Like, uh, I think Del Toro talked about that, too, that, um, you know, these they're like brothers, essentially, of. Uh, and somebody else said that Jack is kind of like a 1930s actor in that he shows up on set. He does the job. He kind of likes to give control over to the director. But in this one, he did do a little improvising. Of course, you know, there's so many stories about what this shoot was like and rewriting the thing. And finally, Jack was like, I just stopped learning the scripts until like the day they were going to shoot because it just kept changing. He's like, I'm not learning lines anymore. Just give it to me right before I shoot. And uh, he did improvise a couple couple of things, like when he blows up at Wendy uh, at the typewriter, I guess that was kind of improvised. The Here's Johnny, of course, was was Nicholson. Uh, a crazy little detail that I found recently I shared with Sean uh, yesterday in our group chat, yes, uh, was that Jack, well, he had actually been in the Air National Guard, but he was a volunteer firefighter for a while and got so good uh, with his axe and like chopping doors down that he was going through the prop door, the fake door, like way too fast for it to be really effectively scary at the end. So Kubrick just used 
a fucking wood door. So every time they had to do this scene, <laughs> like Nicholson was really using an axe and getting through that door. And I can't imagine how physically draining that would have been and how hard on your wrists and your arms. Cause he would have been around 40 making this. Yeah. It's funny that actors, so it's like Steve Buscemi and Jack Nicholson and Clint Eastwood were all firefighters. <laughs> I know, isn't it? It's just not something you would expect, I guess. But especially with, with Nicholson, you know, um, I think, again, it might be because we grew up in the, the era of him at the Oscars and, you know, with like Lara Flynn Boyle and just looking cool and doing all this stuff, like that whole thing, that, that era. And so it's just hard to think of him as, sort of doing these sort of normal things like being a fireman yeah you think it's of him strange as starting when someone doesn't get yeah you know and his career didn't take off till he was 32 you know i mean that's yes. like unheard of now you know that's you're over the hill in hollywood if you're past 30. yeah well we were just talking to uh, our friend like howard about thief and wasn't it uh robert prosky was he 40 or 50 uh, when he made he that 75 <laughs> <laughs> yeah but that's when he took off so i mean it happens sometimes i think brendan gleason was a little bit older when that happened for him but it's rare yeah now it's like they grow up in front of the camera or something well they're all the children of famous people now. <laughs> there are so many or their names are like taylor and tyler <laughs> like they i don't know i can't tell a lot of them apart that, that's my problem. I kind of call them mayonnaise or salad dressing. They just sort of, they're like, you know, we're flipping. It's a different flavor of salad dressing this week. And I can't tell them apart. Yeah. I'm getting weird. The, the hard one for me is that there's so many hot young actresses that I grew up with a mad crush on their mom. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's like oh, Lisa no. Bonet's kid and Ellen oh, Griffith's yeah. daughter. And, um, Oh yeah, Dakota Fanning or Dakota Fanning listening to me. Dakota Johnson. Yes. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah, Zoe Deutsch, you know, there's, there's a ton of them out there. Mm -hmm. That doesn't make me feel old at all. No, not at all. Mm -mm. Nope. <laughs> it's actually a good segue into our next movie. I wasn't even planning that. See? Yeah. Um, and Sean's going to take it away with the intros from here on out. So well, the funny it. thing, a friend of mine was starting this game. Like, you know, what, what's your, what's your De Niro age? And like, how old are you? According oh, wow. to what, okay. What De Niro, so like, we're going through all the actors and like my De Niro age is midnight run, which is pretty cool. Oh, wow. That's like the hottest De Niro. Yeah. And, Which uh, I'm an authority on, but yeah. <laughs> I defer to the expert. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah, my Paul Newman age was the Stang, and I'm feeling really good about this. Like my Clint Eastwood age, Outlaw Josie Wales. Yeah. My Jack Nicholson age was Terms of Endearment. Oh fuck. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. That that doesn't make you feel great. No. <laughs> The amazing thing about terms of endearment, you got to think of like the, like the kind of star he was at that point, first of all, to take a supporting role mm -hmm. but then think about like everything else that was out in 83, like Rocky three. And, you know, everyone, that's when every actor like the, was exercising like crazy and everyone was super fit and there was fitness everywhere. And yeah. Jack just shows up in the movie without a shirt on. Like, I'm fat now. Deal with it. <laughs> yes. Yeah, kind of like I was an astronaut and I'm certainly not anymore. Like this is this is his <laughs> his dad bod, but he's not a dad. Yes. 
<laughs> I love that he's playing uh yeah, he is playing a former astronaut in the movie. And he made a really good observation, I think. It's a movie about a mother and a daughter and their close relationship. And the daughter, played by Deborah Winger, develops uh, cancer. Her mom is played by Shirley MacLaine, which is hilarious because it's Jack's buddy, Warren Beatty's sister. So he's like macking on his buddy's sister, which I love so much. <laughs> I hadn't thought about that. <laughs> yeah. But uh, Jack said one of the reasons he wanted to make this film, and it did get him an Oscar, uh, was that he wanted to see if he still had chops because he had started to kind of make some of these movies that were, you know, all capital letters, Jack, kind of mm -hmm. that kind of performance. And he, he said he wanted to know if he still had it before he moved on. And so he was reading like the right stuff and doing a lot of research on astronauts and finding out that, especially in the right stuff, Tom Wolfe wrote that a lot of their classes, like 40% of the people died. And he said, so my, character was you know like live for the now but he's also even though he's unreliable there's a million things wrong with him maybe the right guy to have around when shit hits the fan medically or something and that he's there for sherlyn clay yeah yeah it's like the last person you expect to rise to the occasion yes. <laughs> yeah the absolute last yes <laughs> That's funny you say that, that he wanted to prove he had chops, because I feel like this is like one of him really leaning into his star persona, too, you know, with all the babes and the shades. Yeah, and, his reputation, know. for sure. That was his take on it. I agree with you. I kind of think it's it's a Jack performance. Yeah, an italicized thing. Yeah. yeah, like a lot of the space he takes up in our imaginations, I think, comes out of this performance. Like, you just feel like he's that guy in real he life. Is. <laughs> yeah, he's that guy, for sure. Yeah. I read a really good book that was recommended by um, Colin Tate, who's a film professor in Texas that I know on Twitter. He's writing a book about De Niro right now, but uh, he recommended this one called Acting Male, uh, which is masculinities <laughs> in the films of James Stewart, Jack Nicholson, and Clint Eastwood. And one of the cool things is, I guess, um, when he's assessing these parts, Nicholson calls them short parts because he does like this idea of getting in there, playing these like bit roles, leaving an impression that kind of mm -hmm. lasts for the rest of the movie. And uh, this writer, Dennis Bingham in the book was saying that his style of acting is more easily introduced in performances that do make these quick impressions because it can't be sustained over the course of a film. It might be like too much. And uh, they said when he's playing a starring role, he italicizes the idea of himself as actor and of his characters as actors, essentially. And so I think he was thinking these are more real, which, again, kind of goes against what, what we're thinking is the Jack yeah. persona. But there is something about how good he is in these supporting roles. Yeah. I heard um, an interview with Tom Cruise recently, and he was talking about, you know, like the the responsibility he called it of being a lead yeah and how he liked doing supporting roles in like color money or magnolia because the he didn't have to carry the movie that's actually a really good point yeah yeah i think it's it's too much maybe part of the reason why jack kind of compares himself to operating almost like a weapon or something like a when he gets on set he'll do whatever the director wants and just you know go for it 
he also said that he wanted to be bigger. He kind of abhorred naturalism, which might be why people don't consider himself a method actor, essentially, uh, because he said we're stuck at the turn of the century. And that is not the kind of thing he was really interested in. Again, uh, for The Shining, he said he wanted to drip acid on the nerves. So he just likes kind of going for it. And um, I think he really goes for it here with Shirley MacLaine. Some of it, like where his hand went down her dress when he's coming on to her on the beach. I guess Shirley had no idea he was going to do that. I mean, they were comfortable enough with each other. Yeah. But but stuff like that. So her reaction there was literally her reaction. And she talks about how well they work together. That's funny. Yeah, I find as I get older, I'm like more and more bored by naturalism. It's just sort of, you know, it's like my... When I shifted from a De Niro to a Pacino guy. Okay. <laughs> sort of, you know, I just want though I because I used to hate overacting. I used that was my always my biggest complaint when I was like in my 20s. Yeah. Like, wow, this just ridiculous ham. He's chewing and, all the scenery. Yeah. Yeah. Now now I'm like, great. Sure. <laughs> like I used to make He's fun of Nicholson and in a few good man, I would think it's like that's the most ridiculous performance I've ever it seen. Really now is. I watch it and I'm like, it's the most ridiculous performance, and it's great. Yes, <laughs> I know. I talked about that movie with Bilga Ibiri when we were doing like legal thrillers. Oh, I remember that. Yeah, yeah. Bilga's had this really great. Uh, his read on it was that it was almost commenting on Nicholson or commenting on the movie as it's it's quoting itself. You know, because we get later on that whole I eat breakfast for, you know, that gets quoted back to us. And it's almost like telling us which lines we should, you know, start quoting. And uh, yeah, it is a quotable Jack performance. And that's another one. What's he got? Like two scenes in the movie, two or three. (laughs) Yeah. Colonel Jessup. But he's the one you really remember. I mean, it's a good movie, but you're watching it for for Nicholson a lot of the time. I mean, Cruz is great, too. Did yeah, you? I remember the last time I watched that. I was like, aren't movie stars great? We should make yes. more of those. <laughs> we don't have that many like bonafide movie stars anymore. They're all making goddamn superhero movies, which we <laughs> didn't get into too much. Uh, I saw something you put on Twitter uh, when we were talking about Easy Rider. We went from Captain America in that movie to Captain America. Captain America. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, hey, it's fun for kids. That's cool. But let's have other kinds of movies, too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Easy Rider's kind of juvenile, too. In the same <laughs> it way, is. You know, but yeah. in a more interesting yeah. way. Let's have more five easy pieces and stuff like that. <laughs> yes. Um, as far as the film overall, what are your thoughts on Terms of Endearment and how it works? Oh, it's wonderful. It's such a, it's such an unconventional structure too. You think of it as like those sort of this popular crowd pleaser, yeah. but I mean, it really skips through the years. So it does. Without yeah. really any signifier, all of a sudden it's like, oh, these kids are old now. What's <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Like we're well into the marriage. What's happening here? Yeah. Well, why are these people the same age? <laughs> Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Really good. It's uh, James L. Brooks based on uh, Larry McMurtry. I hadn't read the book. I haven't really read much McMurtry. Have you? No, I haven't. I no. feel like I should. But I know. So many. It's like daunting. It's a, it's a yeah. giant section at the bookstore. <laughs> <laughs> like which one do I start? If I start with Last Picture Show, am I being like too obvious? Am I too basic for going with that? And everyone has like 17 sequels, right? Like, Yes. <laughs> I never saw the the Terms of Endearment sequel, the, the Evening oh, Star. Oh, the Evening Star. I did, and I don't remember a thing about it. 
Yeah. So there you I remember go. Jack being in all the trailers and then everyone told me he shows up for five minutes at the end. So Yeah. <laughs> they wanted to cash in on the fact that, yeah, he got an Oscar for it and it's Jack for sure. Yeah. And uh, do you want to jump into your next one, which I know me. Oh, yeah. Well, you? I picked the crossing guard. I actually have the old uh, Miramax. DVD oh, wow. Here. Which is kind of a collector's item. Yeah. <laughs> I have <laughs> some it, old ones. Yeah. My favorite thing is how Miramax would just flagrantly misrepresent anything with their movies. Like, like, yep. the, like the, un, the cover of Undisputed, which is a boxing movie set in a prison has the prison exploding and helicopters. (laughs) 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 The reindeer games cover has the casino exploding and helicopters all around it. But, but so this, uh, the Miramax classics, that's pretty presumptuous for a new release, but uh, (laughs) (laughs) Academy Award winner, Jack Nicholson drives this suspenseful, critically acclaimed action thriller about one man's unquenchable search for revenge exclamation <laughs> point <laughs> i don't know if we go with suspenseful action thriller but for six agonizing years freddie gale has waited for john booth the man jailed for a crime that destroyed <laughs> freddie's life now booth is out of prison and freddie's giving him three days before he returns to even the score exclamation point it sounds like a, a liam neeson movie or a western basically yeah <laughs> the crossing guard is an intense emotionally charged thriller that delivers exclamation point there's a lot of exclamation points on this <laughs> oh my god that's hilarious but when really is, you know you're at yeah. that looking for an action thriller and about you know 70 percent of the movie is Jack being drunk at strip clubs and strip clubs, yeah, hooking up with strippers, <laughs> just being, yeah. Again, it's like a a Jack kind of thing, but it's more restrained, Nicholson. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. this was sort of the part of that. Like, the, look, think of it as like a trio of those movies. There was this uh, about Schmidt and the Pledge, where he mm-hmm. was like, "Okay, I'm going to jump back into my character act, character study guy things." And- yeah. Yeah, yeah, I remember about Schmidt being very, very powerful and, and surprising for a Nicholson because it was around the time he did like Something's Gotta Give, where he's mm-hmm. again going into his persona, guy who's been, I think the movie describes it as dating women who are younger. He's been doing so for 40 years. Yes, <laughs> which is so Jack for sure, or what we think of as Jack. But Crossing Guard, another really interesting thing about it is it's him and his longtime on again, off again uh, love, Angelica Houston, playing mm-hmm. estranged, uh, divorced uh, people. Yeah. Yes, she divorced him and married Robbie Robertson. <laughs> Any movie that starts with Jack Nicholson putting Robbie Robertson in a headlock is okay. <laughs> Sean is like, this is the best goddamn movie ever. <laughs> I want to know how many times Levon Helm watched it. I was going to say that, yes. <laughs> Levon Helm is like, this is my this is my Citizen Kane. Yes. <laughs> no, that, that scene with Jack and Angelica at the diner at the end is just one of the most devastating things I've yeah. seen in my life, you know? And I mean, I know we bring a lot of our own baggage mm-hmm. to those, you know, it's perfect use of stars and like what we know about them. Yep. Because it informs the scene so much when they, you know, start to see that they, you know, they start to remember what they like about each other in the scene. And then it just turns so bad, so fast. I know. 
oh, that's a really good way of, of putting it. And it might be also because this was made by Sean Penn, who mm-hmm. knows a thing or two about persona and how to use that to his advantage when he needs to. Um, I think my favorite Sean Penn movie doesn't have Jack. It's it's the Indian Runner. I think that one's mm-hmm. the masterpiece. For me, my favorite of the Jacks is probably The Pledge. Um, I don't know what it was about that movie, but I really hit hard. I was also friends with somebody who became um, Sean Penn's personal assistant. He was my writing partner in high school. It was actually Jesse Ventura's son, uh, Ty. Oh, okay. <laughs> yes, uh, went to high school with him and he became um, Sean Penn's assistant, which he said was mainly just him fetching cigarettes 24 seven but he loved it because he got to like sit around in bars and listen to jack and sean penn just like shoot the shit and close a place down every night and uh that's what they did on the set of the pledge he's like i got to hear so many stories yeah oh my god as horrible as it sounds to work for sean penn that's also sounds amazing it would it would be yeah you're like i can't imagine he's an easy boss but i mean no i wouldn't think so yeah (laughs) these are the wrong cigarettes yes (laughs) there's a great story that was told on my episode with ted griffin that ted told about the assistant to ridley scott uh, when ridley i think it was five packs a day was the cutoff and he wasn't allowed to have any more. But then when the day was, he was going to keep going through and the poor assistant had to be like, no. <laughs> uh, I don't know. Ted told it much better. But if you're curious, everyone, go listen to that. It was the episode on Leo McCary. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, The Crossing Guard, it's a lot of strip clubs in that movie. <laughs> there are so many strip clubs and uh, stripping scenes. So, you know. Yeah. Well, just the opening scene when it alternates between the grief encounter meeting, <laughs> where they're how, all like, sharing their stories and is dealing with his grief. Club. Yes, <laughs> he's dealing with it with with stripper babes. Yes. Yep. Yeah. And it, I mean, I love the movie's so pretentious, and I love that about it. Like when I saw this when I was twenty, like this was what a serious art film was to me. Like this, it was trying to be an art film, all capital letters. Yes. <laughs> Uh, when it starts with the father over Nicholson, the mother over Angelica Houston. <laughs> You're waiting for somebody to like narrate as prologue. Yes. Yeah, I know. I, I love that about Penn. He's like earnestly, nerdily a cinephile. Like even Indian <laughs> Runner was dedicated to like Hal Ashby and John Cassavetes. And like, you know. <laughs> And I well, love I mean, that this is movie, but it's you know, it's like right. Crossing Guard is trying so hard to be a Casabetti's movie. I mean, it it's... really is. Yes, but what I was going to say is like by doing that, by like making your first movie and dedicating it to those guys, it's like a novelist, you know, dedicating their. This is for John Updike, you know, <laughs> that kind of thing. <laughs> I wrote a play. This is for Shakespeare. Yes. But I love Indian Runner. I mean, don't get me wrong. Yes. Because <laughs> well, it's based Guard, on a Bruce song. I mean, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Sean was dating his sister at the time, heard the new <laughs> album, and actually called him at like three in the fucking morning. They were hammered and like listening to the record. He's like, I'm calling your brother. And he did. And it was three in the morning. And Bruce, he's like, I want to make a movie of this. And Bruce actually, probably because it was his sister's boyfriend, was like, okay. And just like hung up the phone. 
<laughs> I love that story, but yeah. That yeah. was a great first song in the crossing guard. There is a really good song. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. that opening with the, the shallow focus, you know, Vilmos. That's like what I was going to say. The cinematography song. is stunning in this movie. But this, you know, Jack in telephoto, like he's in focus and the rest of the street mm -hmm. is just this blur going by and it's all in slow motion. There's a lot of slow motion in the film. There is. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very textural film. Um, it's, you know, endlessly fascinating to, to look at. You also have David Morse, who's one of my favorite character actors. He's, was in the Indian runner. He's great here. I think he's also in the pledge. I haven't seen the pledge in years, but I believe he is. Um, you well, know. God, when he shows up in this, like he comes out of the jail and he's got the shades on. And I said, how has this guy never been in a Michael Mann movie? Like, really? Out. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. I know. He even kind of had that um, like mullety kind of thing going on. Yeah. Yeah. He's total like, you know, yeah. Yeah, you could see him just hanging out with Madsen and Trejo, basically. Yeah. <laughs> Staring down Wayne Grow. Like. <laughs> yes, I know. Let's go back in time and get that thing done. It'd be interesting <laughs> to know if they ever like had a meeting together. Uh, I bet they I bet he did cross his path. I would you'd have to. Yeah. yeah um I mean. then there's you know, Robin Wright is in this movie and she has um a scene where she's basically you know, the future for David Morris and represents all hope. And she's artistic. My favorite is like, she comes over, let's dance and just puts <laughs> on this, this song. And it's what a man, which <laughs> I think was kind of hilarious because you can sort of imagine that would be a good strip club song. Like you can see like Jack hearing what a man is as these women are stripping but here in the other it's it's robin wright just like earnestly dancing in her kitchen and trying to get david morse to dance with her which i thought was kind of a clever touch yeah yeah well, and the ironic lyrics like it's a mighty good man who killed yes, the little girl. It's, it's the guy that was responsible yeah <laughs> he was hammered on the job and you know the little girl died yes yeah and the great the classic sean penn dialogue what is grief define it <laughs> <laughs> we are taking the piss out of sean penn today i mean we love no sean i mean penn. it's like yeah. i love it i like it's yeah. completely unironically love this movie but, but it is so pretentious like, as fuck let's yeah i mean know, I, 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 just that's what i love that. about it it's so overwrought yeah. and just yes. you know and the <laughs> you have the whole thing where you know jack's like avenging the death of his little girl Mm -hmm. spending all of his time looking at naked young women <laughs> which is so twisted yes <laughs> and then finally they have his you know part-time it's like you know, hardcore basically you know like yeah <laughs> but when when the the stripper comes out and does a shirley temple routine <laughs> that felt really icky yes <laughs> and so i love the one patron at the is like i don't want to see this number and then they're like it's a classic number <laughs> like how fucked up are you guys but yeah <laughs> i know i feel like that's like the homage to killing a chinese bookie too because the strip club had these like, yeah. super costume numbers <laughs> <laughs> was this one i don't know if this one was base or base dedicated to cassavetes but yeah <laughs> uh, yeah and that was a kari from mtv's remote control i don't know if you remember that show but she I was don't. the. okay oh uh, there was it was a pop culture game show. You would love it. 
Okay. And uh, she was one of the, she was the. Oh, no, I remember remote control. I don't remember yeah. Kari, though. Okay. Oh, yeah. Well, everyone my age remembers Kari. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Kari and Sandler used to be on a lot, too, when he was a kid. Oh, that's funny. He was Colin Quinn's little brother on that show. Mm. But, yeah, I mean, the, the crossing guard was just, you know. It, it's something when you're a pretentious 20 year old film student you know, like this is that, and then it's dedicated to Bukowski at the end you know so oh like, that's right it was Bukowski I was trying to remember who it was dedicated to yes yeah because he had just died I remember oh uh, yeah and, uh, yeah yeah Bukowski another formative influence for my wayward youth so yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> definitely well before I let you go oh the uh the, the greatest story I got to tell about yes. um, Sean Penn always tells, you know, when Jack has the complete meltdown, when he has the nightmare and he's crying in the bathroom, when he calls yes. Angelica Houston. And I mean, he's going for it. He is sobbing really is. and blubbering. And Penn mm-hmm. told the story, I think it was on inside the actor's studio. He said it was a tiny bathroom. So there was only room for the camera operator and they were all watching it outside on the monitor. And it was just Jack in the bathroom and he just, you know, completely did. I think it was like they did like two takes at the most. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he completely blubbers and devolves and you're just watching this guy in agony in this scene. And he gets up and walks out of the bathroom and no one can even like make eye contact. Like after what they've just seen him go through, it's oh. just this awkward moment. Yeah. Jack lights a cigarette, puts his arm around a pen and goes, it's good to have secrets, Shawnee. Oh, <laughs> I like that. You know, I found uh, yesterday in the um, Jack Nicholson Anatomy of an Actor book, I was reading the section, I was reading the section on as many of these films as were covered in it. And it was on five easy pieces and the, you know, moving monologue he gives to the father at the end and how Rafelson wanted him to cry. And Jack's like, I don't want to cry. And uh, but Rafelson knew enough about him personally as friends to kind of like lean into him a little bit and use that relationship. And he was kind of like, God damn it. Why are you using this? And he said, you know, I would have to use it you know, for this performance. And the day they shot it, uh, Nicholson was starting to like frantically cross things out. Rafelson just said, I don't even care what you say here. I just want the emotion. But it knew it was so personal that he hit off and he didn't watch the whole scene at all. And then when Nicholson was done, he was like mad, like because Rafelson came out like, are you done? And he knew what it cost him personally to do it. And he just felt it was too intimate to ever watch. And he never watched that scene. He just knew they had it because he trusted him and knew he would do it. So secrets, Shawnee, basically. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Rafelson tells that story on the Criterion disc that he was like facing in the other direction. Yes. And Jack was like, you didn't even fucking watch me. <laughs> God Which, damn it. How do you know you have it? <laughs> yes. And he's just like, I know. Yeah it's jack yeah you have it well before i let you go do you have any other favorite either overlooked or just wholeheartedly impressive performances films you'd recommend those exploring nicholson's range to seek out maybe those people who only knew him from like as good as it gets or batman or films like that yeah the last detail is my favorite oh it's an amazing film hal ashby said that of all the people he worked with nicholson could have played every part and I thought that he's like, he could have played 
the guy in shampoo. He could have played, you know, every, he was like, he could have done being there. Like not many people could have, but he's like, Jack could have played every role. I thought that was really clever. Yeah. Well, I mean, what's great about the last detail character. I mean, he's such an unbelievable blowhard yes. and he's really just this powerless, frightened man. He really is. Don't you love that scene at the party where he's like trying to come on to a woman and she's just Nancy Allen? It was Nancy Allen. Okay. Yes. (laughs) And it doesn't work. I like when all the uh, encounter group people are all like cheering and he's just standing in the hallway, like the doorway, looking at them like, why does this make me so fucking sad? (laughs) She is so good in that. Yeah. He's playing like a number of uh, emotions and just all simultaneously. It's, it's a great. And it's the final shot of them just muttering and like spitting in the wind. And it's just like, that's all I have is, you know, profanity. Yeah. Yes. The profanity, you know, they're the motherfucking shore patrol, but there's not a lot behind that. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's really the only, you know, the only agency they have is. By pretending this this ridiculous machismo that the movie sees right through, which is why it's such a great film. For sure. Do you have any other favorite performances or things you want to uh, recommend? Um, now I'm stuck. Wait, <laughs> just oh, watch all fine. of them. <laughs> just watch all of them for sure. Yeah, one flew over the cuckoo's nest. Of course, got him the best actor Oscar. Chinatown. Chinatown. Yeah. yeah, with another. It's it's interesting. Like. I was. I thought about this watching five eighty pieces again. Like, did he win a fight in a movie throughout the seventies? Like, he's always losing fights in films. He really is. He's always getting his ass kicked. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and it's funny that it's like a testament to the charisma that we see him as this larger than life, like mm-hmm. manly figure. But yeah, he's constantly. I yep, mean, he just eight. loses over and over. Again. <laughs> yes. In yeah. Chinatown, it's just this miserable defeat after another (laughs) one after the other yeah you know it's interesting making that film he said uh you know he'd been friends with polanski of course polanski got got arrested at uh at nicholson's house for christ's sakes but we won't go there but uh they had been really good friends and he said the like the one fight that they had making chinatown that was kind of intense was um, he wanted Jack to talk faster. And he said, I've been hearing that my whole career. Everybody wants me to talk faster. Like, this is how I talk, essentially. And uh, <laughs> But Polanski just kept insisting, we have so many pages to get through. You need to move faster, faster, faster. And uh, I guess that was a struggle for him. But it's such a good performance. Yeah. Uh, did you read that uh, book about the making of it? I haven't yet. How was it? Oh, it's good. There's an amazing story. The fights they had on that set were legendary. Yeah. And I guess one day, like he didn't want to wear something and he like took off his tie and threw it at Polanski and Polanski took off his ascot and threw it at Jack. And then like, so then they started escalating. They're ripping off their clothes and throwing it at each other. And they both stormed off the set in their underwear. Oh my God, that's amazing. You know, they're going to make like a, yeah. They drove away and then met at a traffic light. Just started laughing (laughs) uncontrollably. (laughs) I love that so much. Oh my God. You know, that's going to be an original series now. And like, that is going to be the the centerpiece scene that everyone's like, they they just made that up. No. Yeah. (laughs) Welcome to the 1970s. Yes. 
<laughs> That's why the movies were so good because they let crazy people make them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Everyone read Easy Riders, Raging Bulls. You're going to just see whole different sides of some of your favorites for sure. Learn a lot. And, uh, and sounds like read the Chinatown book. Well, I want to thank you so much for doing this, Sean. It was a real pleasure. I always get a kick out of uh, talking movies with you. You make me laugh all the time and, you know, great insights. So thank you so much. Well, thanks. Thanks for having me. Next time I will let you pick the topic. Like I promise I got to write that down and blood oath. Like I won't assign you one. Yes. I do better with assignments. Don't, don't give me too much freedom. It's awful. <laughs> I, mean, I could never I'd walk around the video store for two hours. You know, like I'd rather watch what's on. <laughs> too much choice. Yes, exactly. You know, it's why I still listen to the radio. Like I don't want to have to pick the music all the time. It's too stressful. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. I also want to thank everyone for listening, especially my patrons who support the show and help fund my research equipment film rentals, RSS fees, and more for as little as a dollar per month at the Film Intuition Patreon, which is the home base for the show. Other ways you can support the podcast are by sharing, reviewing, and subscribing to Watch with Jen wherever you get your podcasts, and also checking out the cool merch store hosted and created by our talented logo designer, Kate Gabrielle. You can find the merchandise store, including shirts, tote bags, stickers, and more by visiting filmintuition.com and clicking on the shop link. The show's theme music is solo acoustic guitar by Jason Shaw and is available in the free music archive. You can also reach me or interact with Watch With Jen anytime on Twitter, either at Film Intuition or our Watch With Jen account as well. Well, until next time, please take care and happy movie watching. This is Jen Johans at FilmIntuition.com and FilmIntuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen.